0: Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, FlowHealth, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's
1: actually data.
0: Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello, and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Mitchell Baker, the chairwoman and CEO of Mozilla, the organization behind the Firefox browser, the Thunderbird email client, the Pocket Newsreader, and a bunch of other interesting internet tools. Now, as you all know, Decoder is secretly a podcast about org charts. All right maybe not so secretly, but Mozilla's structure is really interesting. Mozilla itself is a non-profit foundation, but it contains within it something called the Mozilla Corporation, which actually makes Firefox and the rest. Mitchell is the chairwoman of the foundation and the CEO of the corporation. And the Mozilla Corporation, which they charmingly call MoCo, can make a profit. Or at least it can be taxed, which is an important distinction you'll hear Mitchell talk about. I bring this up because Mozilla has been around since 1994 in a variety of structures and business models. It started as a company called Netscape, which is pretty famous, and Mitchell was one of the first employees in the legal department at Netscape. Netscape's product was called Netscape Navigator, it was the first commercial web browser which of course changed the consumer internet and scared Microsoft so much it did a bunch of anti-competitive things that led to the famous antitrust case. In the meantime, Netscape got sold to AOL, and along the way, Mitchell led the somewhat renegade Mozilla project inside the company, which eventually led to Mozilla, the nonprofit foundation that eventually launched Firefox. It's a lot. We could do a whole episode just on that history alone. But now Mitchell is trying to live up to Mozilla's nonprofit ideals of protecting the open internet while still trying to compete and cooperate with tech giants like Apple and Google. And these are complicated relationships. Google still accounts for a huge percentage of Mozilla's revenue. It pays hundreds of millions of dollars to be the default search engine in Firefox. And Apple restricts what browser engines can run on the iPhone. Firefox focus on the iPhone is still running Apple's WebKit engine, something that regulators, particularly in Europe, want to change. On top of that, some big foundational pieces of the web seem to be in flux. Microsoft is aggressively rolling out its chat GPT-powered Bing search engine in an effort to displace Google and get people to switch to its Edge browser, and Twitter's implosion means that Mitchell sees Mastodon as one of Mozilla's next big opportunities. So how does Mozilla get through this period of change while staying true to itself? And will anyone actually switch browsers again? It turns out it might actually be easier to get people to switch on their phones as opposed to desktops. That's what Mitchell thinks anyway. You're going to hear all about it. Mitchell Baker, chairwoman of Mozilla. Here we go. Mitchell Baker, you are the chairwoman of the Mozilla Foundation. Welcome to Decoder.
2: Thanks. It's my pleasure.
1: Uh, We were just talking before we started recording. You and I have been around each other for a while, but we've never met before. So I'm very excited to meet you and talk to you. I think it's going to be a good show. Likewise. So let's start at the start. I think most people know Mozilla because of Firefox, but Mozilla has a much longer history. You have a much longer history with (laughs) Mozilla than just Firefox. Explain where Mozilla started and how you have been a part of the picture for nearly 25 years now.
2: Yes. Mozilla started with the very beginning of the consumer internet, actually. You know, in the time before time, the uh, meaning before the internet, when software wasn't connected, there was a little kind of innovative thing called a browser. <laughs> it was first created by a company called Netscape. And that browser was literally the beginning of the consumer internet. You know, before that, if you were a grad student, mostly in the sciences with a command line, you know, you might actually use the internet, but most of us didn't. And so the browser is what changed that. That was made public by a company called Netscape. And even in the Netscape days, inside the code, the browser was called Mozilla. There's a thing inside the code that talks to the servers. You know, every time a browser makes a request, it says, hi, you know, um, this browser sends what's called a user agent And that's been Mozilla from the very beginning of the consumer internet. And so our our history goes back to like the source, actually. And that was an engineer's kind of inside joke inside Netscape. We used to laugh. Netscape, it's spelled (laughs) (laughs) M-O-Z-I-L-L-A. And so when it became time to open source the Netscape Navigator Code, Mozilla was a clear engineer's insider development way of thinking. And so the open source project became known as Mozilla. It started inside this company Netscape. That company was bought by AOL. Then eventually we spun out of AOL to form an independent organization, which is a nonprofit. Because at Mozilla, the open source is really tied to public benefit, So it was kind of a no-brainer that we'd start as a nonprofit.
1: There's so many interconnections here. The current CEO of Vox Media, Jim Bagoff, was at AOL when it acquired Netscape. And he was like instrumental in that deal. And there's all these like winding connections. But Netscape itself and Mozilla have this kind of winding corporate history. It was this incredibly <laughs> important product. Obviously, Microsoft showed up with Internet Explorer. There was an entire antitrust trial about Microsoft trying to kill Netscape. AOL bought it. It becomes open source. Mm-hmm. Not to dive too much into that history, but that seems like it's still, to this day, colors Mozilla as a foundation, as a company, that it is independent of big tech. Is that just my perception from the outside, or is that how you feel as well?
2: We feel that way as well. We are unusual in having a nonprofit at the core of a global technology company. We like it because it means the fundamental motivation is different. Right, Our shareholder is not looking for maximum financial return. It's looking for maximum public benefit. So we do run a business through a subsidiary that pays taxes. We want to run that business well, but the goals of the shareholders are not, uh, as I said, every last penny or maximum financial return. So we see that as quite different and actually quite important to how we fulfill our, our mission about, about the Internet. And yes, there is a long history with Microsoft. (laughs) We, you know, have worked hard to have, uh, um, a lot of times people want to cast Mozilla as it used to be anti-Microsoft or anti-Big Tech or anti-X. And we, you know, we have a positive vision of what the world could be. We try and identify ourselves as what's the nature of internet life that we want? How do we make things better? So we try not to have a chip on our shoulder uh, but many of the things that were true in that antitrust case from the past um, are still true today. And so the concentration of power, the concentration in the hands of a few large companies that have the distribution channels through their operating systems, that's kind of come full circle, and it's not that different than it was before. Obviously, on phones, it's not Microsoft. But uh, you know, if you still look at desktop computers... Microsoft is still a major player there. So in some ways, it's like a circle or a spiral (laughs) maybe where we try to keep our role moving forward. Currently, you know, really working hard to modernize ourselves for the next 25 years so that it's Firefox as the beginning of a history of great things.
1: Yeah, I asked a a good friend at a big tech company, what should I ask? And they said, just say European regulators, and then she'll talk for an hour. Um, And (laughs) I promise we'll come to that. I just want to take one step back, though, and and kind of understand Mozilla as it is now, not Mozilla of 25 years ago, when it was defined by this battle against Microsoft. You mentioned that you have the somewhat unique structure. You are the chairwoman of the foundation, but the foundation runs the Mozilla Corporation, which is for-profit and has a CEO. How does that work?
2: Yes. The parent nonprofit tax exempt. It uh, has a few subsidiaries, one of which is Mozilla Corporation. That's the corporation that produces most of our consumer products. Uh, For those who are around and especially in Europe where email clients and the Mozilla email client Thunderbird is still beloved, there is a, a smaller subsidiary which houses that. But the main subsidiary over these years has been the Mozilla Corporation that makes Firefox and our other products today. That is a taxable subsidiary. Many people will think of it as a for-profit company. We think of it as a taxable subsidiary (laughs) because because we run it to meet the Mozilla mission, right? It's not a... Sometimes you can have a nonprofit that has a subsidiary and that job of that company is to make money, Um, but the job of... Mozilla Corporation is to build products that create an internet life that's more humane, um, more focused on individual and social benefit, and not so much on maximum engagement and maximum profit.
1: There's maximum profit, and then there's just profit, right? You need to have some money in the bank. You need to give people raises every year. You probably need to hire people competitively against the big tech companies, the, the Mozilla Corporation reports to you,
2: right? How do you think about setting that goal for them? So our template for this is mission first, individual um, users of our product second, and business revenue third. So we do indeed think about running a business and running it well because it's an expensive piece of work to fill this software and to have a chance to compete with the giants Um, but that is not never our first priority and we do make decisions that go against our business interest you know for many years mozilla has been the leader and pioneer you know in anti-tracking tech technology which is both technically tricky and hard but also is not about maximizing the amount of money that comes out of your ads and so we are an odd company and there's a bit of a you know dynamic tension internally and and also of course, with our own business model that we are so active in trying to limit the effects of tracking so that would be one example of how we do run a business, but but there are forces that succeed you know are, are um, really effective that demonstrate we don't have to pull every penny out and we don't.
1: Let's talk about that structure just a little bit more so you the chairwoman of the foundation. Who reports to you? What are the responsibilities that you have and how do you do get them out?
2: Okay, well, now you're really deep into corporate structure, so... Welcome
1: to... D- this is a whole podcast about org charts, fundamentally.
2: <laughs> okay, so the foundation has a board. I'm the chair of that board. The foundation has uh, staff. It has an executive director. And so that executive director is responsible to the board of which I am one. I'm the chair... But of course, the chair has one vote on a board, just like everyone else. Mostly what I do as a chair is I spend extra time with the executive director, thinking through things, long-term things about Mozilla, what's the kind of prep work you hope your exec does before they come to a, a board. That's one piece. The foundation board elects the board of its subsidiary, so Mozilla Corporation, And that board of that corporation selects the CEO of Mozilla Corporation. So as CEO, I report into the corporation board, and that board is responsible to and engages with and is elected every year by the board of the parent.
1: And then when it comes time to evaluate product decisions or some of the foundation decisions, this is the classic decoder question. What is your framework? How do you make decisions?
2: So I I gave you, on the product side, so MoCo, I gave you our basic decision-making piece. Mission, users, business. And so we look towards, you know, we, we have a manifesto. It sets out the traits of the Internet that we're interested in. Some of them are very clear. You know, privacy and security are clear. But it also talks about individuals having more engagement in what happens? Some ability to create and more influence in our own experience. You know, one of the things that people are experiencing with, quote, big tech today is feeling acted upon. Mm-hmm. Right? What are the products that actually put you at the center so that you are creating your own life? Um, those kinds of things are expressed in our manifesto and increasingly a sense of what is the result in the public sphere. That open systems, open source that Mozilla came out of isn't enough, right? Not if it creates systems that are violent and misogynist and racist and all those things. So we have stated in our manifesto some basic goals of what a better internet and better internet life would look like. And so we start there. One of the things I think that's been weak about Mozilla's products in the last, say, 10 years is it's easy to get wrapped up in the mission or the manifesto and the ideal world that we dream of uh, and not be well grounded in what is it that people actually need today and what problems do they have. And so I put mission first um, and users second, um, but part of the work of the last couple of years has been to reduce the gap there because uh, it's easy for a mission-driven organization to get lost in itself. And I think Mozilla has done that, you know, where it's easy to dream up the product that we think would make the world better, but that's very different from the reality of what people living their lives find useful and fun and engaging. And so mission's always first, but in decision-making is pushing the user, customer, consumer much closer to the mission piece so we get a better match of that. But Mozilla's not here to create a product even a successful one that we think isn't moving the mission or a better internet forward, right? If we were purely a product company, we should go off and do it in the normal structure, <laughs> which is not as a nonprofit.
1: <laughs> yeah, this does seem a lot more complicated, but this is all because of the mission
2: of the foundation, right? Well, the mission of all of Mozilla.
1: Do you do you perceive – you have both roles, right? You're the chairwoman of the foundation or the CEO of what you just called MoCo, which is a great name, the Mozilla Corporation, the taxable entity. Yes. Do you feel a split? Do you have a dual personality sometimes? You're like, well, we could make a bunch more money over here.
2: <laughs> well, we've had at Mozilla forever what we would say two hats. That when we started, we were inside a company. So we were employees with management chain and the goals of the company. But at the same time, we were trying to run a serious and legitimate open source project which had distributed authority and was for the benefit of all of the people who contributed to the project. And those are two different things. But I was eventually fired (laughs) over the difference between those two. (laughs) Um, So, uh, But because of that, we have a long history of two hats. Like, so you would say, in my role as an employee, this is what I'm responsible for doing. In my role as a leader of an open source project with people from lots of companies and volunteers, you know, this is what the project needs. And so that, like, multiple hat or multiple roles is kind of, kind of built in. But to the substance of your question, money versus anything else, it is a topic. It's a topic actually because at Mozilla, is growing into running a business. We're a bit the opposite of the norm. We started as nonprofit organization, an open source project with a large global community of volunteers, and we also came out of the very first days of the consumer internet, which we called the web. Back when it, the internet was the World Wide Web, and had a lot of idealism in it, and it's the beginning of the open source movement becoming mainstream. And it was the really first time in modern history anyway, where we would talk about sharing things or collaboration, you know, it's before ride sharing or before Airbnb, all of those things were crazy, Um, but the open source movement came first and it came with a very idealistic volunteer. It's not about the money. It's about what we're creating. We're a community, we're working together. And in a way it was, anti-revenue like, at all, certainly anti-business. It was very much individuals have power with technology and we can voluntarily form a community and create something together and share the thing we've created. And so for Mozilla, the move has been not, like a lot of companies are built where the dollar is first and everything else comes second, whereas we're the opposite and had to grow into running a business, you know, and acknowledging we are running a business and if we want to succeed and be here for another 25 years, like donations are not going to cover that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right? Like the, the, the ability to run a business and build a product that people want and that creates value and find an ethical way of returning some of that value to ourselves so that we can continue is the growth path for us. And so I, I think unlike many other organizations, our conversations about mission versus business are, are quite different.
1: We've talked to a number of different organizations that I would say are on the spectrum you're describing, right? We had the CEO of Raspberry Pi on the show. Yes. It's very much the same model, right? There's a foundation and there's a company that makes money for the foundation. Then you have, you've mentioned donations in my mind immediately went to Wikipedia. I don't think Wikipedia thinks of itself as a for profit or a taxable entity, right? And they feel no shame in asking you for money all the time. Right. And that works for them, but it's, it's just a very different model you're obviously kind of like in the middle here where there's a Wikipedia doesn't have a competitor. Like Microsoft is not trying to start Microsoft Wikipedia 365 and it's not distributed through Google. Wikipedia doesn't have to get through Apple's operating system rules. Right. So they're just positioned very differently. You have all these big tech partners and in some cases gatekeepers and in some cases revenue sources, has that shaped how you think about, okay, we need to be a company. We need to be more ruthless at the core here so we can support our larger mission?
2: Well, I do sometimes envy organizations that don't have the tech giants <laughs> as competitors. <laughs> and if I were starting without the mission to build an organization or to build a company or to build a startup, you can think of safer places to be you know, than, than where Mozilla is. But we are where we are because that's... It's got some core aspects of internet life, you know, in the middle of it. It's tough to run a good-sized software organization competing with the giants on a volunteer basis. I think it's very, like, Signal is in this space where they're much more focused on donations. And so, you know, we're looking at that. But I, I did decide when we formed Mozilla and realized there were ways to get some of the value we're creating back for ourselves that that was a better model. Like fundraising isn't free. Like Wikimedia is a a pretty lucky organization because there are multiple small donations. um, It's enough. But normally a large fundraising organization, your funders have a lot of say in what you do. You know, it often feels pure, but you have to work very hard to have a set of funders who are so aligned with your mission that Either you're working together to create what you're doing or they're not dictating it. And at the size and scale of something like a, like a browser, and, and we're still a fraction of the size of the Chrome team, really a fraction, and it is part of the competitive challenge is what do you really need in a browser with a team that's you know, multiples the size? And So, yes, I do think the fact that we are in this very competitive space and we're building this core platform-level technology, which is complex, Um really pushes us to kind of be in the world, but not of it.
1: I like that phrase. Well, we brought up Chrome, which means we have to talk about Google. The relationship with <laughs> Google is complicated. The largest revenue driver for Mozilla Corporation is the deal that makes Google search the default engine in Firefox. Is that That's what I've yes. always known to be true. That's, so that's true. How much is yes. that deal worth to you? Oh, let's see. I've got written here $450 million, Is that right?
2: That sounds close, yeah.
1: Okay. And that deal, is that in perpetuity? Does it expire? Do you have to renegotiate that deal?
2: Uh, that deal's not in perpetuity. I don't know if Google does deals in perpetuity. <laughs> no, well, <laughs> sure, no, I, I guess so, uh,
1: perpetuity I, is the wrong phrase. Do you have to renegotiate it? Is it contentious to renegotiate that deal?
2: We have renegotiated that that arrangement multiple times over the years. Also also with Microsoft mm-hmm. um, and you know, a few others. I wouldn't say it's contentious. It, it we do take it seriously. You know sometimes people think because we're small, we're naive or like we're Google's mouthpiece or we're Google, but with a different name. <laughs> and that's a little <laughs> that's a little frustrating, yeah. given the amount of energy and focus we put into it. So we do take those seriously. We did in twenty I don't know fifteen or so, shift from Google to uh, Yahoo at the time and shifted back a few years later. Uh, And so we treat those as business deals. One part of the relationship with Google that is sometimes not clear is that Google and Mozilla are aligned on some fundamental things about the structure of what we used to call the web and now we call the internet. And so sometimes people think it's all business relationship, um, and certainly that's important. But, for example, we what I guess today we call the open internet, is uh, which comes down to, into architectural changes and what are you doing and, and standards and how do you build things and are they interoperable? Do you engage with standards bodies? How do they work? What's the actual goal? Uh, and that's because, I'm, I'm not claiming Google is altruistic, but their search business depends on being able to get to content yep. and find things in a way that's very, very different from Facebook. And so in the structures of you know Facebook information goes in but doesn't come out yeah <laughs> really right and so a, a Facebook like model pulls information in and then it all stays in this private space it's not of the web or of the open internet or whatever you might choose to call it which has some pretty deep design implications for us and of course some pretty deep revenue implications and so there are a bunch of basic like how is the internet built areas in which our view of the world is is more, you know, is aligned with Google. And so we see that relationship when you say it's complex. That's very true. It's competitive, there's no question. It's this business partnership piece. Um, and there's also what is the nature of the underlying system that we're trying to build. Now Android's a different story, right? <laughs> but but on the on the on the browser and website.
1: One place where Google is very successful in expanding the reach of Chrome without having to deal with Apple or Microsoft or anybody is Chromebooks, right? They, they partner with hardware vendors. They sell laptops that basically just run Chrome as an operating system to schools and others. Is that something you would do to say, okay, we got to, we got to get away from the two big operating system vendors. We got to go do it ourselves. Why not make a Firefox book? Yeah. Fire well, the just dis- the
2: fire book. Yeah. The distribution channel without the full operating system piece is, is pretty tough. And so that's that would be, once again, picking another area with the same product to go head-to-head with Google in an area where they're really better set up for it and have multiples of resources. Have you asked you know, to put times,
1: Firefox on a Chromebook?
2: I think all the Chromebooks are built on Chrome. <laughs> I was wondering. <laughs> it's almost a yeah. non-sequitur. Like a yeah. Chromebook is built with a Chrome OS. So, so the distribution piece there, um, it's a... It's also it's a resource-intensive game. So like choosing that as the area to go, once again, head-to-head, seems like, bound to be difficult and not likely successful.
1: We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about Microsoft's recent update to Edge.
0: Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation, told in five words. Try. Explore. Connect. Pivot. Transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and, of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. Support for this podcast comes from constant contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need constant contact. Just go to constantcontact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
1: We're back. We've been talking about Google. And when we're talking about your relationship to Google, we're distinguishing Android from Chrome. That's because you make Firefox and most of your revenue, almost all of your revenue, comes from setting Google search as the default search engine in Firefox. Is there another set of products that could make that much money for you or another way to make that much money out of Firefox?
2: So let me step back for just a sec and say, we have been increasing the diversification of our revenue over the last few years. It's still the case that the bulk of our money comes from search, and the bulk of the search money comes from Google. So we haven't fundamentally changed it yet, but have a pretty significant effort um, coming close to double digits in revenue that's not, not from that, maybe, say, 15% now, which Again, it's only 15%, but from where we were, say, three years ago, it's a pretty dramatic change. Are there other ways to generate revenue? Yes. Are there other ways to generate that amount of revenue in the current product, Firefox? Um, That, I think, is unclear. We have, in our revenue diversification, some of that is through Firefox. So there are ways to diversify. Um, Is there another, we'll call it half a billion dollar business inside Firefox right now? That I don't know. Um, certainly, search has been the killer app and business model of a generation. So it's hard to say that we're going to find something that equals that in the same product. Um, but that said, you know we're early in the diversification piece. We have some other things that we're kind of exploring and might help bring to market. But the thing about search is people still like, are wanted and are drawn to it, right? It's a really valuable tool. And, you know, we can see even with the interest in generative AI, some of the questions is, well, how does it change the core use cases? But I think no one thinks that the question of trying to find things online is going away.
1: So this is really interesting. Just by dint of coincidence, I am talking to you after I was in Redmond, where I spoke to Mike Shaw's CEO, Satya Nadella, about generative AI, uh, there's a new version of the Bing search engine which has ChatGPT technology built into it. They have a new version of the Edge browser with that built into the sidebar, which is—I'm sure you're going to laugh at this. I was like, oh, we're just doing toolbars again. All right, here we go. <laughs> but you know, they see that Microsoft sees that very clearly as a way to take market share in search. From Google, like they're explicit about it. They see it very directly as a way to take market share in browsers back from Google with a new revenue model for the browser attached to it. So, as we've been talking, right, I I think the audience has probably sussed this out by now the web, the revenue architecture of the web belongs to Google and they can afford to pay for that search deal with you for a multi billion dollar search deal with Apple. Because as long as people are funneling through Google search and then out to the web pages Google ads on them, Google's making money. So this is great for them. If you try to make a browser with a business model that is not monetizing the entire web, you're in a fairly challenging spot, as you've been describing. Or in the Microsoft case, you have to come up with something entirely new that replaces all of that architecture with something like state-of-the-art, like generative AI, you're kind of in the middle of that dance, right? Do you think, oh boy, we better go out and find a generative AI solution so people can start typing to us and we can start answering those questions and rebuilding a search product? Or are you thinking, okay, we've got to build some other businesses and hope that our browser business doesn't decay as fast as it might otherwise?
2: Well, we're interested in other products in any case. We could take the generative AI piece out and say, You know, are we interested in other products? And the answer is yes, for a couple of reasons, right? More ways to engage with people, more ways to improve the internet with multiple products. So absolutely, we we have a very strong interest in multiple products. And um, as I said, have been spending a lot of time really modernizing Mozilla as an organization to be able to do that. You know, our trade-off with we're running a business... Oh, and we're building the web through the browser. It has to be, you know, remade for other products. Then on the generative AI piece, it's pretty interesting. I mean, it, it framed in the browser and business model. But but first of all, it's pretty interesting. You know, it's also pretty new. You know, Microsoft. Yeah, I guess it's a good week for Microsoft.
1: They're, they are <laughs> enjoying. Generative AI. They are enjoying themselves. Yep.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's. We'll see, like if first week, first month advantage, you know, how long, what that actually ends up being. I think it's probably a mistake to discount Google, you know, based on a,
1: a bad week. A, partic- a particularly bad week, but I'm with you.
2: Yeah, well, core technology, where did it come from? Yeah. Right. You know, so, so we'll see.
1: Do you think there's opportunity to capture share in web browsers back? I mean, Nadella said this to me and I, I thought, I haven't heard this in ages, that we think we're gonna take market share back from Chrome. Is
2: that an opportunity that you, that you think about from your chair? If the use cases change enough. So one of the things, and I'm sure this must be, you know, Microsoft's experience is the same thing we do. The user, the muscle memory of like, all of humanity has <laughs> used search is the Google search, the SERP, right? And we've tried a lot of different ways mm-hmm in Firefox to give people different options. And the muscle memory is intense. You know, people will find surprising workarounds (laughs) to get themselves back to a search results page, even if we're pretty sure we can give them what they want faster. So I do agree that when you have enough change in expectation, that's an opportunity uh, so in that sense, I think the browser space could change. Um, we, we'll want to see, like, it wasn't that long ago where even, you know, Sam Altman was saying, you shouldn't be using this for anything serious.
1: Yeah. I mean uh, you would still say that to you about ChatGPT, which runs on GPT 3.5, right? I, I think there is an awareness there that this was a tech demo. But Bing is a product, right? It runs on a new model. Yeah. It's got all of Microsoft's values wrapped around in it. It's got a monetization engine in it. Like, it's a product. They seem pretty yep. confident in it. My, my question to you is, like, that's a product that competes with uh, a Google advertising funnel that is worth a $500 million payment to you all and a multi-billion. Like, it's just lead gen, right? They're paying $2 billion or whatever it is to Apple. is basically lead gen to their advertising business in search. If you take that away, if you remove that, is there still a huge business model for browsers as a whole?
2: Oh, well, that's the experimentation piece, right? Yeah. So so yes, I do think it's a time of potential great change, right? Like Microsoft has a model for it. That may or may not be the right model. Like sometimes like first mover advantage works. And sometimes it's notorious that it, it's the second or third attempt at a product that is the one that actually succeeds. So I think there's a lot of change coming. Um, Is it going to be instantaneous? Probably not. Uh, Where is it actually going to work well in products? Does it work well for general search? Does it work well for long-term search? Does it work well for shopping? Does it work well in the places where people spend money? Right? Like those are the kinds of questions that um, are just beginning to be understood. So do I think that disruption is coming very much more likely in the browser space than six months ago, for sure, where it was really locked? Right? even Microsoft, with its vast distribution channel, couldn't compete. And so that's actually an interesting question: as couldn't compete in browsers, was that all due to search? Was that because Edge had Bing as a default <laughs> that Google was able to take so much market share, or was there some other reason? Right, and we'll see that. You know, in our case, the distribution piece has just been hard. You know, Microsoft routinely. <laughs> you know, Microsoft updates and. Making it hard to use Firefox. I mean, Microsoft uses its distribution channels to yeah. its own advantage pretty ferociously. Like people often ask us about Google and distribution, and I'm like, well, Microsoft too.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So I think there are a lot of questions about why was you know why did Chrome be Edge? Is it all Bing, or is there something else? And kind of all of that could be up. Um, but the basic question you're asking is there more opportunity for change in these default use cases where? people will look at a new browser. Absolutely.
1: Do you think that you have to build the generative AI products into Firefox to take advantage of that disruptive moment?
2: Well, at some level, the answer is yes, because that's the new technology. Yeah. The question is how much and what does it need to do? And like, like there's an open AI level of investment, right? And then, but there's, which, you know, Mozilla will make, that's for sure, right? That's billions from Microsoft there. But what is it that provides the use cases that people want? So I think AI in general, for sure. And then uh, generative AI is a particularly non-step function, you know, a, a particularly steep kind of change. So, yeah, I think we'll see some changes. Um, I think unanswered is how quickly people change their use cases in the places where they spend money. Where if you're in that part that's just wrong, you know, you have
1: to be careful. All right. You brought up distribution, which means my threat of talking about European regulators is coming true. <laughs> We've mostly talked about the desktop, right, in this conversation. We've Microsoft's distribution advantage is on Windows PCs. It is not anywhere else. I don't think you're trying to put Firefox on the Xbox. Um, it would be amazing if you were. The, can you break that news today?
2: <laughs> I, I think I'll wait. Fair enough.
1: But you brought up Android earlier as well. And next to Android is obviously iOS. These are both much more closed systems on balance, right? iOS is much more closed than Android, but Android is still closed in its own way. The browsers are deeply integrated into those operating systems in a way that, you know, to play with the new Bing, I just downloaded Edge on my Mac and ran it and set it as the default. And Apple was fine with that. And it runs uh, Blink, right? Which is like Google's. It's like it's it, technologically, it's a very open right. It's like Microsoft's wrapper and Google's technology running on Apple's operating system, and that's all fine. And if you want to do that same sort of thing on an iPhone, you cannot just like almost at every level, you are not allowed to do that thing. This is right under European regulators. There's a lot of action around something called the Digital Markets Act in Europe that would make Apple open up to other browser engines, make Google open up to other browser engines. Is that something you're looking at to say, okay, this is our opportunity to go take share in mobile again because we're not just going to be a wrapper around Apple's WebKit?
2: Oh, absolutely. There's two things. There is some evidence that that we find that the use case of browsers on phones is not so set. Like the muscle memory isn't so crisp. Really, people are at least more willing to down I mean you're used to downloading apps on your phone. That, that's yeah. what you do. So we'll see. But to your larger question, the closed nature of mobile phones is absolutely we're both looking at it and, and engaged in it. And it's is what engine you can use at the technological level, where of course, you know, we can't build our full product on iOS. But that's also system-level defaults, and even after you set something else as your default browser, and what does a link open in? I mean, there are a lot of ways that the operating system can thwart choice. Um, but I'll say again, Microsoft on the desktop is a perfect example. We shouldn't let them out. But the law that allows it was really built by Apple. Yeah. Right? There was that antitrust case that you mentioned where these use of the operating system was illegal, and determined to be illegal in both the United States and Europe. But then when Apple came out with its phones, it had no market share. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so it created ultimately this very closed system when it had very low market share, and our antitrust rules aren't really set up for that. And so um, as it became so dominant, it kind of went back to an old closed model, and Android is close to it, although you know Google has made efforts in some areas to be more open. But we're absolutely engaged in that, um, it is the the question is, there's a deep level of implementation stuff that's really important. You know, we've seen a set of EU remedies that aren't always effective.
1: Yes, I was going to ask right? you about And these. so
2: that, like, you have to be deeply engaged and deeply committed, and also technically savvy to be able to implement well. And so I'm, you know, that that will take some time.
1: There were some reports this week that in anticipation of the Digital Markets Act that Mozilla is working on an iOS browser that does not use Apple's WebKit engine. Is that true?
2: Well, we're always looking at it. We're always kind of working on it. Like, we're always looking at, well, what could we do if we had, you know, the ability to offer the product we want? So we're always looking at it.
1: Is that, you've mentioned several times, you're not the size of Google, you're not even the size of the Chrome team. When you think about resource allocation, is it, Boy, we better be ready for this moment when the regulators open the doors and we can ship Firefox on Apple and compete head to head with Safari. Or is it? I've diversified the revenue fifteen percent. We got to get to thirty in case generative AI flips the table on web monetization and Google doesn't pay us. Like, how do you make that decision?
2: Well, really, um, on the information as it evolves, mm-hmm. a lot will depend mm-hmm. on what the implementation pieces look like, like browser engines are. You know, we've done a lot of work on that. So the actual incremental cost of that might be less than you might think for those things. Um, And it will depend as we go on. Like, we're pretty committed to browsers because they're really powerful. But it will also depend as our other things come into line, what needs resources at the time.
1: So you said you're always working on it. Do you have a version of uh, Firefox for iOS that runs on your own engine instead of WebKit?
2: You know, like, when we're... Ready to talk about that? You'll see it up here. Have you engaged directly with Apple
1: on some of these concerns about default browsers and distribution?
2: Oh, I think I'm not going to go
1: there. I figured not, but it was worth a shot. We're going to take one more break, but when we come back, we got to talk regulation.
0: grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: We're back. You mentioned there's been all these remedies in Europe and they haven't really done anything. And, uh, you know, I hear jokes from people that are like, the Europeans have been trying to get people to not use Chrome or Google search for like over a decade. And the market share is rock solid and they've, I mean, these are big interventional remedies, right? This is you boot up your Windows PC and it asks you it puts up a browser ballot, and people still pick Google. You boot up your Android phone in Europe, and it's like, "Do you want to use Google Search and people pick Google over Bing?" And these are the government has installed these choice screens, and they don't seem to do anything. <laughs> like
2: that's. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's the numbers are the numbers, right? It's yes, like you- well, that's,
2: that's yes, exactly. And the DOJ has this lawsuit about, mm-hmm. you know, browsers can't, someone like us couldn't have Google as a default, right? Which is kind of like, I don't understand why the US DOJ <laughs> thinks it's going to do whatever it wants to Google by forcing Mozilla to fight against our customers. Yeah. Right, right like, so, so we see that very close to home as well. I think for consumers, the question about browsers on their phone is not about browser engines. Like That's a systematic level question of what's the architecture of the world that you want. But for consumers, it's much more what's the experience. Is the experience good? Do I want it? Like It's our job to make a product that's got stuff that people want in it. But stopping the operating systems from hindering that would be very helpful. I mean, just the simple thing, you can set your default browser, but links are still going to (laughs) open in something else, (laughs) right? You can't actually, if on a phone, really set things to be default. Uh, And so there are a lot of ways where the phone operating systems also fight against people choosing what they want, uh, which I know about in the browser space. So I think, I think that's helpful, but you have to have some competitive piece that makes sense. That's what the the EU Remedies today
1: really show us. To bring it back around to generative AI, right? Microsoft thinks it can get share back from Google search and get share back from Chrome because it has a cool new feature. That's it, right? Like they're like, we're ahead and you can talk to a robot and the robot will write you a poem and people want to use that so badly. We can be like, install Edge on your computer and use it. I mean, they're at the point today, we were laughing about it in the Verge newsroom today, It's a wait list. And if you set your default browser to edge, you move up the wait list. See, there you go. That's how much they think there's demand for their cool new feature. Why is that okay? Why? I could make an argument that that's of course okay. Like they're,
2: they've got a cool
1: feature that they're giving away for free. And they're like, just change your default to our technology instead of there. Like fine.
2: But it's, but it it is something that no one else can actually do. Google could do it on their own things, but. Uh, It is a, it is a privileged position in that setting.
1: Is there another feature for the web that you could gate against set us as your default, download Firefox and set it as the default and you can get this other thing? Because one of the tropes we have on decoder is people pick convenience over quality all the time. It's like an iron, we comes up most often when we talk to, to music executives where they're like. Now there's 95 channels of audio. And I'm like, yeah, but are the file sizes small? Like, people are going to pick convenience over yes. quality over and over again. And here, what you have is there's been nothing except for the browser is faster and it respects your privacy that has trumped convenience for people. And even that hasn't really trumped convenience. And now there's one feature in the past decade, which is it's got this chat bot built into it that is making people think, oh, I should do something that's less convenient. Do you need a feature like that to compete in browsers or is it we're flipping the table on the Google built revenue framework of the web and it's just open season?
2: Okay, question one. Yes, I think (laughs) you-
1: You You can tell I care about this quite a bit.
2: (laughs) You know, it's not my wish in the world, but I think history shows us that you need something really significant now Mm -hmm. for people to think about changing their browsers. It's deeply locked in, especially if you're using- you know, Google or Microsoft systems. So, yes, you do need something on the phone, yes. Although more people will change Safari on an iPhone than, you know, in some other places. That's fascinating to me, but yeah. So, yes, you you do need some some real change. And this might be it. So, you know, I think Microsoft has invested a lot and will certainly, it's the first out the gate, so we'll see what it is. But to your core question, yes, I think, as I said, the muscle memory of browser use is just... Deeply, deeply, deeply ingrained. And so why would I change from something that's I've been using for a long time? Need something. And as you're right, like the last five, eight, ten years, it's there's not a lot.
1: A long time ago, Firefox was the small, fast browser, right? It was, look at all this bloat of IE. Fine. It was the default. Firefox is nimble and fast and open source, and you feel great using it. You, and it took a lot of share at that point in time. And then Chrome did the same thing to Firefox. And pretty much a, a direct lift. Firefox has gotten old and bloated, and that's what your IT administrator wants you to use. You just install Chrome. It's fast and nimble, and Google made it. Is there another turn where you can do that to Chrome, which I think a lot of people would complain is bloated and full of Google's revenue ideas instead of user experience ideas?
2: Yeah. OK, a couple things. The fast and bloated piece. I'll, I'll own up to when Chrome came out. There's a few other things, actually, about product stuff. Um, data was one of them. So it's an interesting case study where when Chrome came out, the instrumentation of the browser, in the first versions of Chrome, frankly, appalled us at Mozilla. Really? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And we were each right. Google was right that you need to instrument your product and you need data to build something today that responds to people and people want. And we suffered because we didn't do that for a long time. But we were right that the wholesale vendor instrumentation and collection of whatever data was useful or could be had for my own purposes is a problem too. Right. And so you, you see that. Uh, so Chrome had the advantage when it came out. New generation, you know, built by Mozilla people who understood the flaws of the old one, for sure. So next generation technology. Um, it was faster and better at the time. And their view on data. I mean, data collection practices were pretty radical for us at the time. So, you know, we spent a decade trying to figure out and building like telemetry for our products that allows us to build what we need that we're comfortable with and think if our users, privacy conscious users dove in, they'd be comfortable too. And but we have, uh, Firefox is performant and has a bunch of benefits that Chrome doesn't now. So I do think it's possible, I think we've done it to get that wholesale like order of magnitude or next generation technology in the browser space that, I haven't seen that on the horizon with the browsers, the way they're configured. Could you make something smaller? Like if it turns out it's only what we really want to do is talk to our browsers and not read so much. You know, maybe you get something much smaller. Like really, a lot of the complexity of the browser is rendering all this stuff. right? If you're not doing that, it probably can be a lot smaller and lighter. And so you might be able to get that kind of massive change. But anyway, right now, I do want to come back and say, Firefox as a product is a good product. <laughs> the, uh, the performance characteristics are worth looking into, and I can't let you see me, uh, even about the past, live uh, that unaddressed.
1: I appreciate it. I'm sure your team will appreciate the fighting spirit there. There's some news about Thunderbird today. It's, uh, it's the email client from Mozilla. There's a long video about why Thunderbird is the way it is, and a new version's coming out. It occurs to me as I was watching this video, Firefox is the instantiation of a very important protocol, right? It's HTTP and the web and all this stuff. Uh, Thunderbird is about email and the internet protocols that run email, which are open source and anybody can plug into. And this is where the successes have been, right? How do you build values-based products around these open protocols that anybody can interact with and that comprise the internet at large? The web, we've been talking about all the whole time, has been like radically commercialized and closed down. And those protocols aren't really up for grabs the way that, you know, when I got my first iMac, there was like 10 browsers you could use. And like, that just isn't the game anymore. Is there another protocol that you can see on the horizon that allows you to enter with another values-based consumer product and say, this is the way it should be?
2: The obvious one today is Mastodon. Okay. Right, which is a decentralized protocol. Probably, you'd say much more like email than you'd say it's like a closed garden.
1: Yep. And that, and you're thinking there, Mastodon is Mastodon or Mastodon is ActivityPub, which is the sort of protocol that underlies it.
2: In the consumer space, that's, if there's anything at all, it's Mastodon. Yeah. Like the the, the, the protocol itself, I, I think that's a really interesting question, which is the nature of the community around Mastodon mm-hmm.
1: right?
2: and and when we think about it how much is the protocol itself and how much is actually the community of people engaging with it and building things and trying to do something new. So the, the protocol itself is a, like a distributed protocol but and they're you know take time and energy and stuff to build they're complicated but the real success also needs a set of people who are interested enough to do something different. And that, I think, is the larger Mastodon question. So who knows where it will go? You know, Mozilla is, as we've said, going to shortly stand up our own instance of it so that we can learn more, understand more, contribute to the community, um, and really begin to explore hands-on, how far might this protocol go?
1: And do you think it's about standing up an instance, so it's mozilla.social or whatever it will be, and people can sign into it it, is a social network that Mozilla controls as part of the Fediverse? Or is it about, we're going to build tools to let anybody stand up a server? There are some, I think, Squarespace announced something like that today. Or is it, we're going to build a client for this larger protocol that is very difficult to use the way that Firefox is a client for a set of web protocols that a normal person could not themselves use?
2: The first step is to actually be an active participant in that world and do some learning and not roll in as the, whatever it is, you know, gorilla or you know, some <laughs> giant thing that's like, sure, we know everything and we're going to build, you know, tell you how it is. That, that That's not what we want to do. So there's a question about the open source project and protocol and its development. I think for where Mozilla has a fair amount of history, as you point out, in open source, so that might be an area, but that depends a lot, of course, on the project and And then there's also a user experience for people that's easier or comes from a name that people know and trust. Like the the current Mastodon instances are are community-based, so it's possible. Like Mozilla could be the place where a kind of broader group makes sense. If that's to occur, there's, there's a client, but there's also, of course, you run a you run an instance, you're running a server, so you're running a service and those things can vary a lot. So there's some exploration and what's a service that would make sense. You're trying to, you know, you've got a, a current community and then you are trying to think about what would a broader set of users be. And it's a little, you know, it's a bit of an art to be able to span the two of those. And so that's a piece really, I, I want to emphasize, it's a learning piece for us because it's, it's easy when you built one big successful product to think Think more of yourself than you should, you know, and and roll into an existing kind of vibrant community and do stupid things. So we're we're in the learning. But to answer your question, what other protocols are out there? You know, that's certainly one. I think it will take some time for us to understand what is the impact of blockchain separate from crypto.
1: Interesting, because Mozilla had done some early crypto stuff, there was a lot of pushback and you kind of walked away from it, right?
2: That doesn't sound quite right. There was some pushback against us accepting donations. That's what in I, Crypto okay. form. Yeah. yeah. Right, that one, that one. But, but sure, um, yeah. yeah.
1: That's uh, what I meant by early crypto stuff, which is just taking <laughs> the money <laughs> from the crypto yeah. people. Sure, yeah, yeah, fair enough.
2: So we'll, we'll see. I think that's going to be a few years down the road to really un, you know, have a, an evaluation of the underlying technology separate from the use case. I mean, when your use case is money... Yeah, <laughs> I can't. Everything's going to be o- overblown and hyped. and It's money, right? Like money brings out the best and the worst and the worst often, you know, in people. So to understand whether that is a form of decentralization um, and whether there might be interoperability among chains, I, I still think that's a long term question about what I call decentralized technologies. But I don't think we're going to see a lot of that in the next couple of years.
1: Do you think more of your energy has pointed at Mastodon over crypto right now?
2: Oh, sure.
1: In our earlier call, uh, your team referred, to, you have a new C-suite at, in Mozilla Corporation, and your team referred to them as big tech refugees. all so the whole C-suite worked at big tech companies like Twitter and Facebook. One of the frameworks you kind of used earlier in the conversation was, okay, there's Google, which is the open web, and we align on some places and we compete on some places, but this core piece of the information should be accessible. We believe in that. And then there's Facebook, which is a closed ecosystem. You publish an Instagram reel. No one can find it unless you use their products. As you talk about Mastodon, right, and decentralization in that instance, you are now competing against Facebook. Like Mastodon is a social network. It is different in a meaningful way. And that it's composed of all these distributed servers, but it's a social network. It's a competitor. It's where people are going to instead of Twitter today. Um, Is there a piece of, okay, you've got this whole team that came from that world that says we can build a a better, more idealistic version of that.
2: That that may be true in their (laughs) psyche, but it's true at the bar
1: after work is what you're saying.
2: (laughs) But as a, as a business practice and a question of where can we have impact, it's hard to, one of the things that, you know, I guess Facebook really taught us is that social is really valuable in Mm -hmm. a lot of settings, right? So, is Facebook the be-all or end-all forever? Probably not. I mean, there's Instagram, so I guess the answer is no. <laughs> but uh, So I think not doing something because it's a so- it could be social media is a really broad exclusion, which we would never make. But here, I think it's the combination of there is a decentralized protocol. It does allow a kind of experimentation, and it, it allows for the development of something new. Like, I don't think, I certainly don't have a desire to make another cl- Twitter or clone Twitter or try to do Twitter or Facebook better. Right? The question is how is it that people can engage with each other in a you know, way that's fun and healthy and doesn't have all the, the drawbacks that we have? And so, like, Mastodon is interesting because you do have a lot of that experimentation and the questions of content moderation and what's it like to be in this community those decisions are much closer to the communities themselves and it's not one centralized decision maker. So that's an interesting piece on many different fronts. And sure, we would all love to see a way to engage online with large numbers of people in a social media flavor that isn't so great for negative actors and racists and misogynists and state actors and, you know, conspiracy theory and mental illness. We don't, we would love to see that, but it's not a question of, oh, go take on Facebook or go be the next Twitter. Do
1: you think it's a question of those things may have also run their course and a decentralized version of those things might improve in all the metrics that you just mentioned, but also just sort of harness a consumer demand for something new?
2: Well, I'm not sure the architecture alone Mm -hmm. is going to harness or even speak to consumer demand. Again, that's that that piece about the rendering engine underneath your browser. Well, I mean, you're talking to the
1: Verge audience. The Verge audience is like, come on, give us a rendering
2: engine. I know, yes. Yes, I do think it is. It is time, and, and likely that our, our like social media experiences are evolving, and should evolve. I, I don't know. I can't say is Twitter on its core well has the thing that Twitter was built to be. Are people done with it? Yeah. Like is microblogging the way it is? Like is that over? It, it didn't seem like that for its for its core audience um, wasn't growing. So there's something about the Twitter experience that's really gripping for a set of people, but it's a smaller set of people than than the other things that we've seen. Um, but certainly, again, at, at Mozilla, because of the way we're set up, being a smaller alternative is a fine thing with us. You know, Firefox at its height was maybe maybe 28% market share, maybe 30 but certainly never like dominant, ever. And so, you know, even at those market shares, you can have change like you can show the possibility of something different. Um, and you know Firefox had impact at most is open source now except for Apple stuff. but <laughs> um, you know lots of changes came out of that 30% market share and you know including a bunch of things about how the web was built. And so like a smaller alternative that is better and different uh, is fine. like showing the promise of what could be is intensely valuable for us. You know we don't have to take it to like the dominant control everything piece. I think we should learn as Mozilla that uh, you don't want to give up too much <laughs> because you <laughs> know things can change and you can find some of the world that you've built gets gets twisted in ways and you'd like to have more impact on it i'm you know i I'm not advocating that Mozilla aim for small shares, but that it is possible to have a pretty big influence at a smaller number than people suspect and Again, for us, that, that's, a, that's a really successful case.
1: Yeah. I think that's a great place to wrap it up. What's next for Mozilla? What kind of timelines should we be looking
2: at on some of these ideas? What, what's next in your priority list? We're starting our, our second um, quarter century this year. And so our priority list has got uh, on the full Mozilla piece, multi-product, multi-effort ways of impacting the internet. And so on the product org that I have, as you pointed out, there's a lot happening in browsers still or right now today. Uh, So keep looking for things from us on that piece. Across the range of things that we've talked about, there are multiple products. We have a product called Pocket, which uh, we're in the midst right now of... Uh, and a kind of an expansion of capabilities about that, which you'll, you'll, I'm not going to announce those things now, but you'll hear <laughs> about those. So I, I keep looking for those things that are interested. As I said, our Mastodon experiment and exploration will go live pretty soon. So you'll see those things. You'll see more focus on helping people uh, privacy and security has always been part of our core. As you said, people opt for convenience very often, but increasingly, you know, you do have to take care of yourself. And so you'll see and hear more from us about that. We have launched on a broader Mozilla piece, you know, Mozilla Ventures, which is a small fund for investing in other organizations that we think can help build a better internet. It's a Mozilla AI organization. We'll come back, we'll say more about that as we go forward. So I think really to keep looking for Mozilla modernizing multiple efforts, more focus on the user and consumer and arrange of new product and offerings coming.
1: Amazing. Well, Mitchell, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. I hope you come back soon.
2: Yeah, that's my pleasure. And I'd love to. Thank you.
1: Thanks again to Mitchell Baker for taking the time to talk today. And thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. I read all those emails. Or you can hit us up directly on Twitter. We're at DecoderPod. We're also on TikTok at DecoderPod. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. It was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters, and our executive director is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.